Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with cognitive scientist Hugo Mercier. It was recorded in February 2023. Hugo studies human reasoning and communication, as well as cultural evolution, working out of the Jean Nicode Institute in Paris. He's the co-author, alongside Dan Sperber, of The Enigma of Reason, and is also the author of Not Born Yesterday, The Science of Who We Trust and What We Believe. This book, Not Born Yesterday, is what brought Hugo to my attention in the first place and is a highly recommended read for anyone interested in persuasion and influence. If, like me, you come from a marketing and communications background, it might tickle your cognitive biases a bit, but it's a super constructive read. Amongst other things, Hugo and I discussed the reasons that climate change is so hard for humans to grasp, how we assess messages we're exposed to as credible or not, and what happens when we encounter information that doesn't quite align with our existing beliefs. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Hugo Mercier. So the big one uh, that I like to ask all of my guests, it's very broad, um, but that's kind of also the beauty of it because you get everybody's individual perspective on this very large subject. And that is how, from your perspective, can communication contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place? Wow, that is uh, that is indeed a big one. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I think pretty unambiguously it has already in the sense that um, I think I was just reading the figures that in Europe, for instance, 93% of, of the population, uh, you know, accepts that climate change is happening and that it is going to have, you know, bad consequences. So this is, you know, a huge improvement of what the numbers were, uh, you know, a few years or even decades ago. And so all of that has to be through communication. Like there is no, you know, there is no other way to explain these these massive um, changes in attitudes uh, than through communication. So so we know that has, that has happened, and we have good reasons for believing that that has had a large effect in the sense that working in political science has shown that um, you know rightfully enough public opinion does uh, play a large role in, in policy development and, and policy implementation. And so if the whole public or most of the public um, is more uh, in, in favor of green policies, then it's much easier for politicians to to implement such policies. So clearly, the communication has has played a large role. Um, I guess moving forward now, uh, in most Western countries, maybe a bit less in the U.S., but even in the U.S., people will have to pivot away from persuading people that climate change is happening to telling them what they have to do about it, you know, you know, both kind of what are the policies that maybe they should support and individually, what are the behaviors that would be the most impactful. And, and for instance, I think there is still widespread misconceptions about, you know, how important is it to recycle versus to not eat meat and this sort of things. And people tend to get them uh, quite wrong. So there's still a lot of, a lot of room for communication, uh, I think, to, to really play a role both at the individual level and at the level of public opinion, which which then impacts uh, policy. What are some of the characteristics of climate change that make it difficult for people to grasp or attribute appropriate risk to, and therefore to generate sufficient mobilization? And what's the cognitive challenge that we face there? 
except for people who um, have suffered, you know, personally, they can see that the temperatures are rising, that you know, there are more, there's more flooding, that you know, the, there are more droughts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think, unfortunately, there are a, a number. People have to be persuaded that the phenomenon is real, and they have to be persuaded that it's man-made. And I think both of these things are pretty counterintuitive, that the idea that you know, us kind of puny humans uh, might be able to, to warm up the whole earth, uh, it seems you know, on its face, it's widely implausible. Um, and indeed, you know, even within scientists, the idea took, you know, took a bit of time to take hold. So, so there's the, the fundamental kind of perceived implausibility of it. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's very well established. I'm not saying it's not true, but you know, it's not intuitively plausible. And then I guess there's the time horizons. Uh, so, I mean, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of creeping up, creeping up on us now. But, you know, if you look back 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when people already knew that bad things were going to happen pretty much for sure, um, it seemed as if it was a long way away. And there was always kind of more pressing problems that need to be addressed. And it's still the case. I mean, there's still, you know, rampant poverty and, you know, and social unrest and a lot of other issues that are, you know, that are killing people now. And so, the idea that you should devote a lot of resources to this apparently implausible threat that will come in decades, uh, it's a hard sell. And and obviously, you know, many people are saying, well, you know, humans are so stupid and, and they're, you know, they're not at devoting enough resources to the problem, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that, you know, we are doing quite a lot of things about it and that many governments in the world have managed to to unite to some extent to to push, you know, to push favorable policies, it's also, you know, it's not sufficient by a long shot, but it's, you know, it's better than than maybe some cynics might have expected. Yeah, I feel like we've really, um, in the last year even, come leaps and bounds. It's funny that you put it in terms of the implausibility of humans at scale being able to impact this thing, because the same issue is at play when we try and convince people like your individual actions can actually play a, a role. Can we dive into that more? Is there any more that you can say about that particular phenomenon? Um, it is in the most fundamental sense true that, you know, what I'm going to do is not going to impact how much warming there's going to be in my in my, in my my future. Um, unless, you know, I don't know, you'd have to be the worst polluter in the world to make a significant difference, I guess. But obviously, as you were saying, in the aggregate, it matters a lot. And so even if you can be persuaded that such and such behaviors are, are better for, for the environment and, and you still have then to be persuaded that, you know, you in particular should, should engage in them or should, you know, advocate for them in the case, in the case of policies. And that's a, in many cases has been a much harder sell. And so people agree that climate change is real and that something should be done about it, but they don't necessarily know what to do or whether, you know, it's worth their own cost. Like, you know, well, I want to go to the Seychelles for the winter holidays. Um, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference whether I go or not. But obviously, if everybody goes to the Seychelles, then, you know, the world is going to burn much faster. And so that's where you have to create. And that's what's, you know, that's what's been happening, in, in, at least in some segments of society. You have to create social costs such that if you do go to the Seychelles, then your friends are going to be like, yeah, oh, that's not great. And so that's a way for people of, of kind of internalizing the, the cost. So instead of just having this very diffuse idea that you're kind of hurting the climate, but you know, you're not really because you're making such a small difference, then you're paying an actual cost uh, because your friends think maybe a little less of you for, for being negligent in that way. And um, and so that's that's works, but it's not, it's usually not something that you can explicitly push because the idea of kind of shaming people uh, is not, you know, it has its downsides as well, obviously. So, but it is happening. I mean, clearly in some segments of the population anyway, it is happening and it's probably playing a, a significant role in changing people's behaviors. 
So you raised that we don't really need to convince people now so much um, that climate change is real. And one of the things that I wanted to get to from Not Born Yesterday is that we often think that marketing messages, political messages, news cycles, etc., have an enormous impact on what people think. And Not Born Yesterday comes at that from a slightly different angle, I think. Could you briefly summarise how kind of the reality differs from the common assumptions on this? I think in many cases, whether it is in terms of, of buying goods or, you know, voting or, you know, having um, political opinions, people often ascribe choices that, that they don't really like um, to gullibility. So, you know, people voted for Trump or for Brexit because they had been brainwashed by The Sun and Fox News, respectively. Uh, people buy SUVs because they have been brainwashed by, you know, Mercedes or, you know, or, or whatever. And I think this is really a mistaken like, you know, narrative or kind of ID. A lot of the literature just contradicts that. And so by, by and large, mass communication mostly works when, when it reinforces people's priors. So advertising might maybe play a role at the margin by telling you, oh, you know, maybe you should buy that SUV instead of that SUV. But the desire to own a big, powerful car pre-existed the, the advertising. People were to some extent kind of racist and sexist, you know, before voting for Trump. It's it's, it's nearly a, a wishful thinking to think that it's scalability because it's well, you know, if only there wasn't Fox News, then you know people wouldn't vote for Trump and everything would be fine. But in fact, these things that we dislike about uh, you know some other people in the, you know their choices and their opinions, they're much more kind of deeply rooted uh, than we than we like to imagine. And so that means that the the issues, uh, you know, they will they will be harder to solve than if it was if it was mere gullibility, unfortunately. And uh, and thinking that um, that either you know that people have been brainwashed, or that they could be you know easily influenced to change their minds is uh, is largely illusory, unfortunately, or fortunately for that matter. Yeah. So the next question is on its surface, I guess, quite a simple one, um, but perhaps you'll tell me that it's not. Uh, which is why doesn't everybody believe what they're being told about climate change? Yeah, no. I, I mean, from my point of view, the question is, you know, in a way, why would anybody believe what they're, what they're being told about climate change? To the extent that, you know, essentially, none of no member of the public or very few members of the public know anything about the science underlying climate change and and how the data is acquired and and all the processes that are in, that are in place to make sure that the data is reliable, that the models are robust and you know predictive. And and given the the almost complete lack of understanding of you know and I'm kind of including myself in in, in that category, um, you know it takes a lot of of deference towards experts to for people to accept that uh, that climate change is happening and, and how it's happening and why it's happening. You know if you can think well you know scientists have figured out how old the universe is it's like wow you know I don't know how they did it but it's you know they must know what they're doing. <laughs> And so, uh, so then when Sen says, you know, look, this is happening and we have kind of a good idea of why that's happening, many people tend to accept that. Um, in the case of climate change, things were much slower than they would be for other things. As we were saying, people probably thought, well, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit implausible. So it, it was harder for them to accept it. And also because obviously very, you know, from very early on, it was linked to the idea that because climate change is happening, then you have to change your behavior in ways that are kind of personally costly. Then it also gives you a reason to reject it. Uh, so that's an example of what you know, psychologists call motivated reasoning. So people had reasons to, to, to want to reject that because it was, it was either they thought it was implausible or because it would require sacrifices, even kind of small sacrifices of them. And then they were just finding reasons to reject, uh, to reject these, these views. What happens to us 
when we hear messages that contradict our views from messengers we consider credible and why? So whenever we encounter a piece of, of communicated information, we're going to take several um, kind of dimensions into account uh, to evaluate how much weight we should put on that information. Should we accept it? Should we reject it? You know, how much we should, should we accept it? Some of these factors relate to the content of the information. So, you know, is it plausible? You know, are there good arguments? Other factors relate to the source of the information. Is it someone who's competent? Is it someone who we think has our best interest at heart? And sometimes, as you're describing, two of you know some of these components will 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 won't go together. So something that might seem implausible uh, might be you know told by someone who who you you know you respect. Um, and then um, it's really up for grabs. So you know if you tell me, um, you know if you tell me that you I think you're you're born in January and you tell me actually I'm born in February. Well, I'm going to immediately accept that because I have no reason to mistrust you, and because you know I think you're competent in knowing what, what, what month you were born in. Um, by contrast, if you know if you if you tell me that uh, you know you have, there's a herd of pink elephants in your in your living room, uh, I'm not going to trust you on that because it's, you know it violates my expect you know my expectations too much. So it will really it will depend on 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 how implausible you find the information, and on the other hand, on how much trust you put in that in that person. What if I was a zoologist, for example? And then there's actually a slight chance that I might not be pulling your leg. That's what scientists have been doing, you know, since, you know, from the beginning. So scientists are telling us that, you know, continents move. They've been telling us that, you know, there are black holes that are infinitely dense and that can absorb matter, you know, that the universe was smaller than a, than a pin. So they've been telling us widely, completely implausible things, you know, things are widely more implausible than climate change uh, for a long time. And people have been, by and large, accepting them. Uh, in large part because, by contrast with climate change, it doesn't require any action of them. When when you have a personal cost, then it's not just a matter of plausibility; it's also a matter of kind of the behavior that is entailed by the beliefs. And if that behavior is costly, then you're going to be like, "Oh, can I wait? No, wait, wait a second. <laughs> let me this super implausible thing you just said. Let me let me think twice about it now." That trust in science works really well for for things that are free. Essentially, you just accept the belief, and that's it. But as soon as as there's some kind of cost. Uh, it becomes a bit trickier. Uh, depending then again on, on how implausible the message is and how much trust you have in the person and the kind of trust you have, either you're going to um, veer closer to accepting the message. You don't have to accept it completely, but you know you, you may be a bit more likely to accept it. Um, the other solution is that you're going to trust the person less. So in particular, you know, like for instance, if, I, if it's something like I'm, I'm really knowledgeable about and you tell me something that clashes with my beliefs, then I'm, maybe I'm just going to think that you know you're less you know ex less of an expert or less knowledgeable than I thought you were, uh, or if I have reasons to believe that uh, you're trying to mislead me, you're trying to to get me to do something that's not in my interest, then I, I'm going to think that you're not you're not my friend, you're not someone who who has you know my best interests at heart. Um, so it's one or the other. So either you know because it's not you know you know it should be coherent if you think well there's that person that I respect a lot is saying something that I completely completely disagree with. It's not ideal. So either you change your mind at least a little bit or you, you come to think less of the person. Presumably the next interesting um, intervention then is when another person you trust says the same thing. Yes, so exactly. So in, in particular, so I think, you know, we discussed, we were discussing earlier why uh, people trust science. Um, and I think what, what's important is that on some level, people realize that 
when scientists tell you, well, the universe is about um, 15, I guess, billion years old, it's not just one guy saying that. It's like a community and and they have agreed that this is, you know, a kind of quasi-consensual answer. And that's what makes it persuasive. Uh, by contrast, if it was just one person or if it was uh, several individuals, but they, have an, they all had an incentive to be telling you the same thing. So if you have you know, several um, spokespersons for the same pharmaceutical company saying, telling you, oh, that drug really is fantastic. Uh, you know, even if there is several of them, you'll be a bit suspicious. But if you don't have that suspicion that there is some kind of, you know, conspiracy, essentially, people have really agreed to, to mislead you, then if a lot of people agree with each other, it's a very, very strong uh, clue that, that they are indeed correct. Like if they have gotten, if they have reached their opinion partly independently of each other, uh, and they all agree. Then you're like, okay, so that should give you pause. And indeed, I mean, one of the one of the arguments that does work to to convince uh, people who are maybe not so sure about climate change is the is telling them about the existence of a scientific consensus. Like on average, if you ask people, you know, what is the perceived consensus of, of uh, on climate change within scientists, they will widely underestimate how consensual it is. Um, and maybe they'll think, well, you know, 70% of scientists agree or something. And if you tell them it's actually 98 or whatever percent of scientists agree, then it will change. They will change their mind a little bit, at least um, into thinking that indeed, indeed, it is uh, it is real. So I wanted to talk about trust. Where does trust come into this? How do we build trust? How can we gain the trust of an audience? Well, so I think there are kind of two main dimensions of trust. One has to do with how competent, essentially, how knowledgeable the, the audience thinks you, think you are. Um, so that can come you know, from being an expert and you're just having access to more information. Um, and the other dimension, so that dimension is the, is the kind of relatively easy one in the sense that there is obviously a huge gap in expertise between, you know, climate scientists, for instance, and the general public, and it's quite easily demonstrated. You know, they 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 know a lot of stuff about, you know, the climate. Indeed, they have a lot of measures. They can make these very fancy models. Uh, they understand, you know, a lot of the mechanisms behind climate change. So that's one dimension of trust, which I think then again most people respect uh, the authority of of climate scientists and, and of most other scientists. The second dimension of trust, which is a bit trickier, is you know. Does that person have your best interest at heart? And that's something that's much harder to establish. And typically, it takes a long time. So, you know, we're, when it comes to our, our friends, our colleagues, uh, it's the kind of trust that is built usually very gradually when you realize that people around you are reliable and that, you know, they help you when you need help, uh, that they're not, you know, they're, they're, that they're doing that somewhat gratuitously. So they're not just expecting a benefit in return. They're doing that because they, they want to engage in some kind of like long-term relationship with you. And and there's no real shortcut to gain that kind of trust. Like you just have to show people that you're reliable, that you're not going to lie to them, that you're being honest, that you're you know you're you're considering their 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 interests. That's where I think there's a lot of, of room for improvement. You know, to some extent, for instance, when 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 a climate change activist or to, or to some extent, kind of climate scientists tell you, well, you know, you have to do this and that. Um, and that it seems it might seem to people as if they're not hearing us, they're not hearing the public saying, well, look, I mean, there's, it's very hard for me not to take my car because I have to drive to work. It's very hard for me not to do so and so. Um, it seems as if they're neglecting the public's interest. They're just telling their thing and they're going you know, to say, well, this is what it is. And they're not, they're not listening the way you know, a friend or someone who really wants to cooperate with you uh, would. 
And um, and so there's a trade-off, I guess, between on the one hand, you know, the urgency of the situation and the fact that you really have to get these messages across, and on the other hand, the fact that we you have to do it in a way that uh, that is not going to antagonize people. But on the whole, like good communication, communication that would be that would really involve a back and forth and not not just kind of unidirectional communication in which you just transmit a message, but you know, in which communication in which you listen, you, people are actually do listen to the population and they. They kind of hear what they're saying and they understand where they're coming from. Um, even if at the end of the day, the policy recommendation is going to be the same, uh, the public would, would feel uh, probably better if they understood, okay, so they know about the cost this is going to impose on me, uh, but they're doing it anyway because, you know, they have good reasons for doing it, not just because they're not, they don't care about me. One of the resounding things I've started to take away from these conversations that I've been having uh, in creating episodes for the podcast is that communication as I initially thought about it coming in doesn't seem fit for purpose. A message handed from one person to another seems so out of step with what we seem to need to do, which is far more participatory um, community building and decision making. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, both have, have their usefulness, I guess, like sometimes I mean, there are things for which, like, you know, if you want to tell people, look, um, here are uh, five ways to cut your, your meat consumption, for instance. So these kind of, you know, you know, tips and, you know, small pieces of advice that are, that to some extent people are looking for, you know, maybe they want to lower their meat consumption, but they don't really know how to go about it in, in a way that's not too costly for them. Um, this you can imagine like, a, you know, kind of simple rollout because you're just trying to communicate this tidbit of information to people who are interested but when it comes when it comes to more generally changing people's mind, um, yeah, know that you, you'll need something else, you know. And even uh, you know, it's we don't know exactly what caused the the kind of the sea change in public opinion about climate change over the past decades. But um, there is actually there is at least work showing that discussions do play a role. So people who talk about climate change and they're more likely to believe in climate change and and then to talk about climate change to others. Um, and the advantage of these of these kind of small scale discussions when we talk to our to our neighbors to our family to to our to our colleagues is that you do have this back and forth like you know you can really address their 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 uh, you know their reservations their criticisms uh, to the best of your knowledge anyway and so I think it's it's you know it's hard to tell whether it's just the media whether it's just these discussions it's probably a mix of both because you know people read stuff in the media and then they pass that on to others it's kind of this two step flow model that's quite you know that political scientists have shown to be quite important. But it's quite likely that a lot of the change was not through, you know, just the, the authorities informing the public, uh, but through members of the public informing others. From a cognitive science perspective, what are some of the mistakes that you could highlight or that come to mind that communicators often overlook when attempting to engage audiences generally? One thing that comes to mind is something that is known as the curse of knowledge. It's a kind of well-known phenomenon that affects a lot, kind of teachers, for instance. Or as soon as you have a different in, in a difference in, in expertise and, and knowledge between between the the speaker and the audience, is that it's really hard for people to take into account the fact that other people don't know what they know. And for people who have been studying climate change for a long time, not only does it seem kind of obviously true, but even the mechanisms and the knowledge on which it's based, all of that might be taken for granted. And so to just remember that that it's not and that most people, you know, nearly everyone doesn't know as much as you do. And that um, 
that it means not only that they might not understand what you're saying, but also that they might not automatically agree with some of the things that you can take. Well, you know, obviously this is true, so we can, you know, take it from here. But in fact, no, that thing that you think is obviously true, even that you might need to establish further. In conversation, it works fine because, you know, if, if, I, if you tell me something that I don't understand or that I, you know, you seem to take for granted, but I don't, then I'll tell you. But if you're speaking on TV, on the radio, in newspapers, you don't necessarily have that, have that feedback. And then the last question then is, how can communicators use knowledge of human cognition to be more effective? So I think the, the main maybe um, contribution of, which is not specific to cognitive science, is, is just we have to test things. Like it's really important to, if you have a communication strategy, to make sure that it works, to try to you know, do some, some, some pilot studies, do some, you know, measure the outcomes, to see whether, because we have, you know, even experts to some extent, they, have, they might have misguided intuitions about what's going to work. And so it's really important just to measure things and to, and to get feedback either from actual people telling you what they think or in a more indirect manner by doing surveys, doing running experiments, A-B testing, etc., etc. This was such an illuminating discussion. I really enjoyed it. But what stuck with you from this conversation? What can you take from it and apply to your own communications practice? For me, there were a few things. First, it's the value of conversations, not just messages or communications outreach, informing the foundation for social change. But also at the same time, the value that that content, those media messages have for providing the jumping off point for those conversations to happen. It's all taking place hand in hand. Next, it's the essential need for feedback. Is what we're doing working? Is it having the desired effect? We should be working in ways that allow us to assess these kinds of things and that allow us to make any changes that might be necessary. If I've learned anything about the history of climate change communication, it's that a lot of people did a lot of the same for a long, long time, without much success. Pretty sure Einstein would call that madness. So that's what I'll be keeping in mind. But how about you? What will you be taking with you into your work? Thanks to Hugo Mercier for sharing his time and knowledge with the show. You can find links to Hugo's books, as well as some other useful resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the skills and the expertise that we'll need for this essential task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care. Thank you.